0: Welcome back to What We Believe. Today we're going to be looking at um, the question of the doctrine of Jesus Christ. So we sometimes refer to this in theology as Christology, the doctrine of of Christology. So I'm Jonah Haddad. I'll be uh, leading this session. And like I've said before, if you have any particular questions... Uh, You can leave a comment in the video or you can reach out to me or reach out to one of the elders or or Pastor Jason if you'd like more information on any of these particular doctrines or points of our, our statement of faith. So we are in the statement of faith of Bergen Park Church and we are looking at number four, Jesus Christ. I'm going to read that for you. We believe that Jesus Christ is God incarnate, fully God and fully man One person in two natures. Jesus, Israel's promised Messiah, was conceived through the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He lived a sinless life, was crucified under Pontius Pilate, arose bodily from the dead, ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of God the Father as our high priest and advocate. So again, the doctrine of Jesus Christ, known as Christology is really what we're looking at today. And there's a lot going on in this particular point of our statement of faith. There's a lot here. And as with some of the other uh, points of doctrine we've looked at, I'm not going to pick this one apart word for word and look at each each piece. But I do want to address three particular questions uh, today that I think are particularly pertinent to us. So the first one is, how can one person, Jesus Christ, have two natures, a human and a divine nature? I think this is going to be an important thing for for us to try to understand. And I would take you to Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20 on this. I think this passage is, is, is very clear on who Jesus is, his divine and human nature. So let me read this For you, Colossians 1, 15 through 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things When we talk about uh, the incarnation, the joining of God and man, let me just go back to this, um, to this scripture. Uh, we see a lot of things going on here in this text. Uh, just so you see this, Jesus, the Son, is the image of the invisible God. So he is that which, or the, the one who reveals God to us. He's the firstborn over all creation, which gives him a certain kind of authority. That's a way of, of presenting the authority of Jesus Christ. He in fact is referred to here as the creator. Through him, for him, all things were created. Um, he is before all things. So we're we're looking here at the fact that he is eternal, infinite. Um, the head of the body, the church. Again, referring to his authority. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. So again, Jesus here um, has all the attributes of God. And so this text in particular points to the divinity of Jesus Christ. But we also see certain human elements here as well. The fact that he was born, that he dies on a cross, that he can be raised to life, his human body. So this is uh, Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man. Now, the incarnation of God in Jesus Christ is what I would refer to as a putative Paradox, or an alleged paradox. And a paradox really is the affirmation of two propositions that are both intuitively true, they are both plausible, but they don't easily reconcile. So it's, it's a difficulty. It's not a contradiction, but it is a difficulty. Our belief in the dual nature of Christ is not a logical contradiction. I need to be very clear on that. Rather, we affirm that the joining of God and man in the person of Jesus Christ is really the only logical solution to the human condition, which we looked at in the last video. Jesus is the answer to the human condition. So, the incarnation of God in Christ provides a logical explanation of how a holy God and an unholy human being can be brought together in. Relationship with one another. Jesus stands between unholy human beings and the holy God of the universe. So if God simply said, Don't worry about sin, it's not a problem, no big deal, I forgive you, this would undermine his holiness, his justice, his righteousness, these essential attributes. If, however, God were to simply destroy us on account of our sin, this would undermine his love, his mercy. His compassion. And so again, Jesus is the solution that brings ultimate glory to God. So Jesus, Jesus Christ, with his fully divine and fully human nature stands between God and man as mediator. And you can see this in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. Jesus is the only mediator between God and man. So this means that when God looks upon people of faith, he sees the goodness of the righteousness of Christ that covers our sin. And when people of faith look to God, we look to Jesus Christ who intercedes for us and enables our pleas for compassion and for forgiveness to be received by our Father. So Jesus Christ is everything that God is and everything that man is meant to be. That's an important piece. Jesus is everything God is and everything man is meant to be. Remember what we talked about last time. He is the second Adam, the one who comes to repair the damage done by the first Adam. So as God, he has power to save. As man, he is able to bear the consequences of human sin. So that is one way we understand the importance of Jesus as both fully divine and fully human. So moving on to the second question I want to look at. How can scientifically informed people believe in the miraculous circumstances surrounding the life and death of Jesus? Right, this is the 21st century. People don't believe in miracles. People don't believe in ghosts. How do we explain these miraculous uh, circumstances surrounding th- th- what we call the virgin birth of Jesus? Surrounding his resurrection from the dead so you go to text like Matthew 1 23 It says behold a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel which means God with us So a virgin giving birth? How does that make sense? So we we read this and we come to one of two possible uh, Conclusions on this either the person who wrote this did not do so well in biology class Or, shockingly, the God who created the world might actually have the power to do whatever he wants. Now, I prefer the latter possibility. So the miraculous birth and the uh, miraculous resurrection of Jesus are unbelievable. Only if you really ascribe to philosophical naturalism, if you ascribe to a worldview known as scientism, then these things seem a a bit strange. And the idea here is that if it can't be verified according to a particular set of presuppositions about the way the universe is supposed to work, if it can't be verified according to those things, then it's not true. So if you can't taste it, if you can't touch it, if you can't test it, if you can't physically interact with it, then it doesn't exist. Or or that kind of thing. That kind of thinking. And scientism really is an extreme form of philosophical naturalism, where there is No supernatural, or at least there's a denial of the supernatural. And honestly, this type of thinking is false. The problem is that the claim that scientism is true cannot be tested according to naturalistic assumptions. The claim is merely theoretical. Now, the only things that scientism and other naturalistic philosophies can do is tell us that the virgin birth and the resurrection of jesus are improbable but we already knew that of course they're improbable now what they can't do what these worldviews cannot do is tell us that the virgin birth and resurrection are impossible That's something they cannot tell us. So science, if done well, helps create a framework for understanding the natural world so that we are better prepared to be astonished by God's supernatural interventions when they do occur. So the laws of of nature describe what happens normally in nature when there is no intervening supernatural uh, activity at play. The Bible itself doesn't treat supernatural events as commonplace. Keep that in mind. It treats these events as very strange occurrences. The witnesses to these events were perplexed. They were confused. They were astonished by what they saw. Think about when, when the angel appeared to Mary. She, she could hardly believe what she was seeing. This is often what we see happening in Scripture. People are amazed at the miraculous signs, amazed at the miracles that they see. So two things I think are really important here to understanding miracles when we think about what a miracle is. The first thing we need to keep in mind is that a miracle is not the violation of the laws of nature. Okay? It's not the suspension of the laws of nature Rather, it is a unique situation in which other factors are at work, and those other factors are divine activity. Secondly, this is a very important piece as well, if there is a God, it shouldn't be strange to posit that God can intervene supernaturally in his creation. If there is a God, he can do whatever he pleases. So if you have a problem with Miracles. If you have a hard time with this idea of miracles, I would encourage a couple of things. First of all, I would encourage you to check your assumptions about philosophical naturalism. Secondly, I would challenge you to get your theology of God in order as well. We need to understand who God is. If we have a good theology of God, then it should not trouble us that God intervenes in his creation. So that's the second issue I wanted to look at in our, our doctrinal uh, statement on Jesus Christ. Now, a third question. Did the incarnation of God in Jesus Christ change the unchanging God? Because it, in one of the sessions earlier, we talked about the idea that God is unchanging, one of his attributes. So how did the incarnation affect this? Now... Um, God is eternal, God is unchanging. Um, we read this in James chapter one, verse 17, right? Our heavenly Father does not change like shifting shadows. You can go to, to Malachi in the Old Testament, uh, chapter three, verse six. will tell us something very similar. Yet God enters time-space history. He takes on flesh, as we read in John chapter 1, verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. He humbled himself. He took on the very nature of a servant. He submitted himself to to death, even death on a cross. We read that in Philippians chapter 2, particularly verses 7 and 8. So what does it mean that God does not change? I think what we want to say is that his character remains intact His character remains intact. He is not susceptible to uncontrollable fits of capricious fallibility or fickle kinds of behaviors, that sort of thing. But as God interacts with humans in time-space reality, the Bible does leave open the possibility of changes that are perfectly within the nature of God, consistent with God's nature. So the kinds of changes that we would deny have to do with God, say, no longer existing, or God no longer exhibiting goodness or love, or God no longer being omnipotent, or that sort of thing. Those changes do not happen. Furthermore, the way in which the joining of God and man might affect the unchanging God has really a lot to do with our views on time, on eternity, on chronology or chirology or uh, logical modalities, foreknowledge, possible worlds, and so on. Um, this is pretty heavy duty stuff. It requires some heavy duty analytic metaphysics and philosophy, physics, that sort of thing. Uh, we don't need to necessarily go there. What we can do, however, is affirm with the scriptures that we looked at in in session three on on the attributes of God or the doctrine of God that God cannot experience change in his intrinsic or fundamental character. Okay, so that's important to, to understand. God can, however, undergo the appearance of some kind of change from our kind of temporal standpoint of human beings, so keep in mind that, according to John 3, the same Jesus who is the begotten Son of God, is also the eternally existing creator that we read about in John chapter one. God thinks, acts and knows from timeless eternity. However, His actions take place in time-space reality. So to summarize this very complex, uh, very complex doctrine um, I would say that we should affirm, again, that God is deeply and personally involved in his creation. That, that's an important piece. God is deeply and personally involved in his creation and in the lives of his people to the point of joining himself with a human being, with a human uh, body, a human spirit. This is the same God who is unchanging in his nature, in his character? So, this doctrine of Jesus Christ, Christology, is a, is really is necessary to the understanding that we have of the hope of the good news proclaimed by Jesus Christ. If anything, this doctrine should remind you that God loves you, God cares about His creation, God wants to be in relationship with human beings. He wants to restore the fallenness that we experience in the human condition. God understands and has experienced suffering. He's experienced pain. He has experienced temptation. God has reached into our lives. The incarnation of God in Jesus Christ really is a testimony that God cares for his creation and he has a plan of restoration for us. And we'll look at that in more detail as we turn to the next session on the atonement on salvation so thank you for joining me for what we believe